You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 29 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, if you are on your Christian Humanist feed or a different related network feed, uh, this is a kind of network extravaganza, uh, but you do have mostly Christian Feminist members, so thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are Alexis Neal and Jay Eldred. Hi, Alexis and Jay. Hello. Hello. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving and thankfulness and food and hospitality and lots of Thanksgiving-related issues. Uh, but first, um, Jay is a new participant, so we're going to start with introductions and give him a chance to introduce himself. So take it away, Jay. Well, I'd like to say thank you for having me on the podcast today. Um, I am Jay Eldred. I live in New Bern, North Carolina with my wife, Crystal, and my cat, Smokey, who has decided to take up residence on my lap this morning. So if you hear him, he says hello. Um, I have a degree in history, and for the last seven years, I've taught high school social studies at our local Christian school. Thanks, Jay, and uh, thanks so much for volunteering to be on this episode. We uh, we had a, a bit of a scheduling issue and had to replace a panelist at the last minute, so we're really uh, grateful, thankful, I suppose we should say, uh, that you're stepping in for us. Uh, Alexis... Tell us about you. Uh, yeah, I'm Alexis Neal. Uh, I live uh, in southern Missouri with my, uh, with my husband and my 18-month-old son. Um, I am by training an attorney, but for the last couple of years, I have been an adjunct professor at Southwest Baptist University, uh, where I teach a variety of law-related classes, sort of whatever they need in whichever department that touches on the law. Um, but that's just a part-time gig. My my full-time gig is, is definitely the the wife and mom role, um, and so that tends to take up a lot of my time, especially now that said 18-month-old is uh, running around and learning how to express his opinions and developing uh, said opinions at a rapid rate. So that keeps me on my toes uh, quite a bit these days. Sounds exciting. Uh, I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Um, I also have a cat on my lap today, so maybe we can have uh, a, a purring contingent on today's episode. Uh, I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our two cats, Smirjikov and Dorothy Parker. Um, you're probably going to hear from Smirjikov today if you hear from either of them. Uh, for about three months now, I've been working in audience development at Public Radio International. So uh, 
learning a lot about that new environment after being in academia for a while. So that that's us. And as I said, today we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving-related matters. Um, and because we're doing that, the first thing we want to do is uh, talk a little bit about one thing that we're really grateful for, specifically you guys, our listeners. Uh, we've gotten some really encouraging emails in the past couple of weeks that say things like, uh, you just want us to know that you're listening to us, that you appreciate our opinions, that you, uh, you're getting some, some positive community from us. Um, and that's just been really encouraging to, to read and to share amongst ourselves. Um, specifically, we want to give a shout out to two listeners who wrote in uh, and told us really fantastic things, Tony and Louise. So hi, Tony and Louise. Thank you so much for your messages. They really mean a lot. Uh, and now on to the episode itself. Um, we want to talk a little bit about why we're doing this episode, um, why we like food and cooking and feeding people. Uh, so I'll go first. Um, I first learned to cook in a serious way when Michael and I got engaged, um, partly for practical reasons, because I, I knew I was going to have to do uh, cooking for two people instead of one, and, and that seemed like I should maybe develop uh, more skills. But also because, um, in addition to kind of learning how to be in a serious relationship and learning how to be engaged, I was also teaching and writing a master's thesis at the time, uh, which is a lot. And I got to a place where I was feeling pretty overwhelmed and pretty anxious, so I started seeing a therapist who recommended that I counteract this kind of trapped inside my head feeling uh, that I was going through this anxiety by doing something with my hands. So I decided to learn to cook from scratch. And that physicality, this sort of like measuring and chopping and, and all of that physical work really helped me get outside my head and work through some stuff um, in addition to developing some cooking skills. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of my, my serious cooking journey. And, and later, um, as a professor working at Crown College, I tied cooking into some of the mentoring work that I did. I, I really started to feel like um, feeding people and, and giving them that kind of uh, meeting those physical needs was a way that I could minister to students and, and show them that I valued them and that I loved them um, and show them that I wanted to treat them as kind of holistic, uh, complex human beings. So uh, as, as cheesy as it might sound, um, I, I primarily cook because I love people and that's a way for me to show love to them. Uh, what about you guys? Why do you cook? Well, I guess I started cooking... I, I can't even remember when I started cooking. I always helped my mom and my dad in the kitchen. And I think that's one thing that I have that I haven't seen very much is both parents teaching their children to cook. And so my dad taught me how to do things like roasts and potatoes and potato salad. And my mom taught me how to make things like pastas and pastries and pies and it just sort of all came together so that when I went away to college, I was one of the few guys in my dorm that knew more about cooking than, you know, heating up ramen on a 
hot plate or something like that. And so I was able to help them. And then now with teaching, about once or twice a year, I'll do a demonstration of this is how you make a pie or this is how you put on a meal for someone, generally for the senior class within their home ec class. But it's just a way that I found that I'm able to give back. And some of the guys look at me like, you cook? So I'm just grateful that the Lord gave me parents that taught me how to cook that I can now give back to others. Alexis? Um, yeah, my, my experience is sort of a, a combination of, uh, of both of y'all's. I've been cooking since I was little, but I really came into to loving it. Uh, like you talked about, Victoria, something to do with my hands as a break from the very cerebral work of, of law school and studying and reading hundreds and hundreds of pages um, and, and a feeling of victory that, you know, maybe I wasn't understanding whatever concept was being covered in contracts that day, but by golly, I could make a souffle. Um, and that sort of sense of maybe I'm not completely worthless after all, um, that accomplishment was very valuable to me. Uh, but I think on an even more basic level, I, I love to cook because I love to eat and I love food and I've always loved food and learning how to cook good food has been a way to guarantee that I have good food to eat. Um, and, uh, and as you pointed out, it's a great way to love other people. Um, but sort of, I get to be selfish at the same time because I get to give them something wonderful to eat, but usually I get to have some too. So, um, I can, can feel like I'm blessing other people, but indulge my own, uh, selfishness a, a little bit. Um, I think I also really appreciate it. It's a great activity for an introvert. Uh, you can go in the kitchen and just sort of mindlessly work on uh, on the steps of cooking um, while being away from other folks uh, when you need that. Or you can have one or two other people in, but they're working with you. And so the, the interaction can be kept to manageable levels. Um, and then I think, too, it's it's... I love the idea of being able to give people a gift. And giving people gifts randomly is kind of not really acceptable and slightly frowned upon, I think. Uh, people can often feel like if you give them a gift th that they have to do something for you. But food, I think, still feels like one of those areas where you are allowed to just spontaneously say, why don't you come over for dinner? Or I made you cookies because it seemed like you had a bad day last week. Um, and there isn't that same uh, feeling of obligation that, that is created. It just creates, I think, a feeling of affection. Um, and in that sense, I think it's a great picture of, of grace. Uh, you can just give it to someone and it doesn't, it doesn't create a burden. It just uh, expresses care and affection. Uh, and that's, that's really fun to do. And then, again, I usually get to eat some of it along the way. So... Uh, that's that's probably the, the a few of the reasons I really enjoy uh, cooking. I love that food as grace metaphor that it that it doesn't uh, ask for anything in return. That's really cool. Thanks. It's it's uh, yeah. It's it's been a, a great way to both receive and extend grace because I certainly have been encouraged by other people providing me with food uh, at various times uh, in my life. So I uh, have definitely been on the receiving end of it as well. Which actually, I think, uh, leads us into our uh, our next section on uh, on reading and specifically uh, uh, specifically what the Bible has to say uh, about food. So, um, so food <laughs> food in the Bible is kind of an enormous topic. Um, 
It uh, the the entire Bible is just full chock a block with food uh, from the very opening chapters to the very closing chapters. Um, you see, food uh, is a central piece of the Garden of Eden and the fall, and food is central uh, to heaven and, and uh, the culmination uh, after after the resurrection and the second coming. Uh, in Revelation, so uh, there's there's a ton in between, and I'm I'm not going to talk about all of it. Obviously, I just wanted to hit four big food-related areas uh, or storylines in Scripture, uh, starting with Eden, then manna, then communion, and then finally heaven. Um, I think beginning in Eden, we see food as uh, as a symbol of, but never a substitute for uh, God Himself. Um, so in the in the garden, you have a rich variety of good food that is provided for Adam and Eve, uh, and that shows them that, that the God who made them is good, uh, he's generous, he's creative, he's kind, and he's attentive. Um, he knows, cares for, and provides for their physical needs, uh, which then would be a way of reminding them that he knows, cares for, and provides for all of their other needs as well. Um, there is a limitation uh, on the food that they're given, uh, as we know. Uh, this shows them, among other things, that food is not uh, the end-all, be-all, that the gifts of the Creator are, are distinct from the Creator uh, himself and must be subject to him and the parameters that, that he sets. So we see God as a God of freedom, uh, but also boundaries, uh, grace, but also holiness. Um, and we'll see this harmony playing out again and again throughout Scripture uh, with the dietary laws, for example, uh, where God will establish requirements for his people, but also a means of cleansing them when they transgress those requirements, and then culminating ultimately uh, in the perfect cleansing, uh, which is made for our transgression, uh, that is Christ the spotless lamb. So that idea of, of grace and holiness continues on. Um, but that's where we start off in in Eden, uh, is, is how much the, the provision of food in Eden tells us about God. Uh, then later in the wilderness, uh, the Israelites are forced to face the reality uh, of their need for and dependence on God. Uh, they've just been rescued uh, out of slavery by him, but they still need a reminder that they need him and depend on him. Uh, while they're in the wilderness, they are, ex exist in a world that, uh, apart from God's miraculous provision, would be incapable of sustaining life. Um, apart from God and his good provision, they would perish in that wilderness. Um, so the food that sustains them there uh, is a symbol of the sustenance they need from God. Without his provision, uh, we cannot escape eternal death. So they were uh, trying to escape temporary death, uh, physical death, but, but we need his provision or we will, cannot escape eternal death. Um, I love that the manna, like God's mercies, uh, arrives new every morning. So it's given in day-sized portions. Um, food is provided as it can be consumed, one day at a time. Uh, so God is blessing his people with food, but in such a way that encourages them to keep looking to him and trust him for that provision, uh, rather than trusting in the provision itself and, and collecting you know, all of the manna they need and then, and then focusing on that. Um, this day-to-day -day provision sustains them all through their time in the wilderness uh, until they ultimately reach the bounty of the promised land. Uh, and in the same way, God's grace sustains us uh, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis uh, in this broken and fallen and sinful world until we'll reach our true Canaan, uh, where there will no longer be any pain or, or hunger or want. So that's a little bit about, about food in Eden and food in the wilderness. Uh, moving into the New Testament, we actually discover that our ultimate food is Christ. He is the ultimate source of strength, of nourishment, uh, of vigor, and of life. 
Our act of eating physical food, we discover, is a shadow of the eternal spiritual reality of feeding on Christ, something that we will see most clearly in the communion or Eucharist. Um, At the communion table, we see um, a a reminder of God's best and greatest provision. Uh, We already know we need food or we die, uh, but our even more basic, even more vital need is for a Savior. And that's what we see in, in the, the uh, memorial meal at the communion table. A perfectly righteous God-man who was willing to, and able to bear the penalty for our sin and at the same time endow us with the spiritual rewards of his own righteousness. So our faith in this loving sacrifice is then what sustains us and gives us spiritual life. Uh, the communion table reminds us of this most precious food, the death of Christ on our behalf. Uh, And then also in communion, we see food not just as a symbol of sustenance, uh, but as a symbol of fellowship. Uh, We are reconciled to God. We now have an intimacy with him and a relationship with him uh, that we did not have prior to Christ. Um, And then because we are united to Christ, uh, we are then united to one another. Uh, And the communion table reminds us that our communion with God is the basis for the community of believers. So it's a beautiful picture of how what we have in common Christ is greater than any of the many ways in which we are different. Um, so this this communion feast uh, was instituted by Christ, um, and and it is a feast. It's it's humble fare, but it is truly a feast um, because of what it represents. Uh, and he gave us instructions to keep repeating this feast until we will share it with him in heaven. Uh, which brings me to to the final sort of uh, culmination uh, of food in the Bible. Um, that that arc. Uh, ends uh, with the Bible in its closing chapters where heaven is described as a wedding supper. So it's a celebration, it's a feast, and it's an eternal loving union. The language that we see in Revelation is rich with the best of what our earthly eating experiences have to offer. We see joy, we see fellowship, we see abundance. Um, and, and it's worth noting, you know, this is not always what we see at earthly weddings. Um, sometimes the the food options can be uh, a little underwhelming, and there's sometimes a really long wait before you get them. Uh, but that's not what they're, they're talking about uh, in this wedding feast. Um, this is not just a sating of our desires. It's, it's lavish blessings from our father and our bridegroom. And we're not just guests. We're actually the bride in this scenario. Um, the food here is once again a, sp- a symbol of a spiritual reality. Uh, in heaven, we will feed on Christ. We will taste that God is good. We will drink the living water uh, forever. Um, we'll have what we truly need for life, the real tree of life uh, that is Christ. Not just physical life, although that's certainly an element of heaven, but real spiritual life will be ours. And it's not just um, it's not just the food side of things either. It's a wedding feast. So in addition to all of these ideas of food uh, and this ultimate expression of provision and satisfaction, uh, that's intertwined with the highest expression of love, intimacy, acceptance, welcome, commitment, and fellowship that we can grasp. Uh, that is a marriage. So it's this this ultimate uh, coming together and ultimate feast uh, together at the same time. Um, that's that's sort of my bird's eye view of of food in the Bible. There are a lot of other topics we could talk about, and I'm sure some of you guys have um, some thoughts about that. Uh, ways that food is mentioned in Scripture that are of interest to you, and I would love to hear them. Uh- Thanks, Alexis. That was really great. Uh, First of all, I admire your ability to kind of distill um, 
such a such a plethora of information down to those four things. Uh, something I thought was really cool about the four things you picked and the way they related to each other is that the Old Testament examples are uh, seem to me to be about necessity, whereas the New Testament examples um, sort of build on that and and are about, um, as you said, abundance and and celebration. So this this idea of God as someone who not only gives us what we need when we need it, but but also um, gives us more than that, uh, you know, gives us life and gives it abundantly. So thinking of, of God as, as not only provider, but as, as someone who, um, you know, gives us more than what we need. Uh, so that, that's my thought on that. Jay, did you have anything to add to what Alexis said? Well, when I first saw that we were discussing food in the Bible, my thought initially went to blessings. Um, specifically in the Old Testament with the tradition of passing on the birthright. And we have that account of Jacob deceiving Isaac. But then it's almost mirrored in an opposite way in the New Testament with the Last Supper and Christ passing on not a physical birthright, but a spiritual one. Um redefining not just the promises of the Old Testament, but fulfilling those promises. As he, is, as he said, he was come not to break the law, but to fulfill it. And I guess in that way, I don't know, I, I just started rambling there. So anyway, sorry about that. No, I've lost my tra- I have lost my train of thought. That's okay. Um, I, I think that's great. I think... Um... I think that what you're saying is is really interesting about God making sort of connections um, about his promises through something as simple as as food metaphors. Um, And I think that's something we'll probably talk about a lot today, how something as as simple and as physical as food can can refer to something deeper and and more spiritual. Um, On that note... uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about hospitality uh, and hospitality as uh, as a virtue in the Bible. So just generally, hospitality is pretty central, not just to biblical culture, um, not just to culture um, when the Bible is set and written, but also in other um contemporary parts of the world. If you've ever read any Greek tragedy at all, um, you know that hospitality is is central um, to people like Agamemnon and Odysseus, um, other other members of Greek tragedy. But as Alexis said, there's so much material here, um, we can't possibly be exhaustive. So I'm going to mention two examples kind of narrowly and, and one example in a little bit deeper way. Um, My two narrow examples, one each from the Old and New Testaments. Uh, First, in Genesis 19, when we have the the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, 
it's at least partially about cultural hospitality. Uh, we, we don't have, I think, the, the time or the expertise today to, to go into the degree to which um, the destruction of the city is or is not about other things. Uh, so that debate exists. If you want to find it, you can find it in other places. Uh, but the thing that I wanted to note is just um, that this is at least a little bit about how to treat visitors, foreigners, um, what hospitality looks like culturally. Lot sees the two angels and welcomes them into his home. Um, he's then chastised by the other men from the city who demand that uh, the angels that they don't know are angels come out into the street so that they can be essentially raped. Um, I think we can probably all agree that uh, gang rape in the street is not a good example of how to treat someone who's visiting your town. Uh, so we, we get a sort of complex vision of um, the role of cultural hospitality there. Later in the New Testament, um, a passage that I think a lot of uh, Christian women and Christian feminists are for good or for ill, very, very familiar with um, the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Um, the telling that Luke gives us is brief, so I will read it. Uh, these are verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So here um, we see actually that cultural hospitality traditions are, um, according to Jesus, getting in the way of what's really important, that they're um, getting in the way of the priority of worship, the priority of, of literally sitting at the feet of Jesus and, and listening to what he has to say. Um, I, I've always sort of had a complex relationship with this story, um, I, and I think, as I said, a lot of women do, because um, I, I feel like we, as Christian women specifically, are often socialized um, by our families and by our churches to, to show love through things like food preparation. And so it's, uh, it, it's sort of a, a complexity to think about that, that doing that too much or that doing it for the wrong reasons can, can actually take away from um, a worshipful focus. So I, I think both of these passages kind of show both the importance of hospitality and, um, and kind of complicate its, um, its uses. Uh, and the last thing I want to mention is uh, a parable in the book of Matthew, um, a parable that's actually been on my mind a lot in recent days, given um, current events and things in the news. Um, the parable of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. I'm not going to read the whole thing, because it's rather long, but the gist is uh, that the Son of Man will come and he will judge us. And he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And uh, 
the basis of this judgment is, he says, beginning in verse 35, uh, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Um, and then the, the people designated as righteous get kind of confused, and they say, well, Lord, we, we didn't do any of those things. We never saw you in any of those situations. What are you talking about? Uh and verse 40 says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, and then the, the people who didn't do those things get sent away. Um, and I, I think this parable is is really interesting because it, the, the kind of service it lists, services that it lists are are fairly easy things to do physical things um visiting the jailed and the sick feeding the hungry clothing the naked um these are not things that take a lot of manpower to do at least on a small interpersonal scale they're not um but they're really spiritually important. They're invested with this deep spiritual meaning in that the parable tells us if we do these things for anyone, for, for regular people, uh, in effect, we are doing them for Jesus. So I again, there's that connection between the simple and the physical and the much deeper spiritual. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on any of these examples of hospitality in the Bible? Well, I actually, um, I've also had the, uh, that, that parable on my mind a lot uh, in the past days, uh, Victoria, as, as I imagine a lot of folks have. Uh, and I've been thinking about um, how, how much hospitality is, is an opportunity to imitate God. Um, we, we talked about in the, the section on food in the Bible um, that he provides for our physical needs in so many ways. And uh, when, we, uh, when we extend hospitality to somebody else, uh, and in the parable of, of the sheep and the goats, we see the, the meeting of others' physical needs. So we're doing for other people uh, in some very small way what God has done for us. Uh, he welcomed us, uh, poor strangers, uh, enemies even, um, into his presence and, and dines with, fellowships with us uh, at the communion table and ultimately in heaven. And that then leads us to welcome others, offering them food and fellowship, uh, and ultimately love. In addition to, uh, obviously, the, the sheep and the goats, um, the, the sinful, selfish, rebellious uh, younger son is welcomed back home uh, in the parable, parable of the prodigal son. Um, strangers and beggars are, are brought to a wedding feast. Uh, these parables use this idea of hospitality over and over again. And in every situation, uh, or in, in most of these examples, uh, the people who are having hospitality extended to them, they're pictures of us. Uh, that's us. We've received hospitality. And that's why we extend hospitality. Uh, because no guest could be less deserving of our hospitality than we are of Christ's. Uh, no cost to us in terms of uh, inconvenience or hardship or even risk could ever be greater than the cost to Christ, what it cost him to bring us to his table. Um, it cost him his very life. Uh, and so that's that's been really convicting to think about, um, just to try and think about what hospitality means biblically uh, in light of the discussion um, of, of the refugees and others in need of, of hospitality in the, the most basic sense. Um, and it's, it's just been really convicting 
convicting to think about how unwilling I am to uh, to endure even a, a small sacrifice uh, for someone else, despite the fact that such a great sacrifice was made to, to extend hospitality uh, to me. So that's that's been profoundly convicting to me uh, over the last week or so. Okay, great. And, and thanks, Alexis, for that, um, those wonderfully convicting comments. Um, I, I, too, don't think I should add much there so that I don't take away from, uh, from what you said. Uh, so I think that we should maybe move on from here. Um, and since, uh, since it is your specialty, uh, why don't you get historical for a little bit, Jay? Okay, well, it's important to know when discussing Thanksgiving that whatever our concept of that first Thanksgiving is, it's probably wrong. Um, At worst, it's myth, and at best, it's conjecture, because the only thing that we actually know about the first Thanksgiving is from a few lines in a letter written by an Edward Winslow in 1621. Um, William Bradford does make a few lines in his history of Plymouth Plantation, but all he mentions is the harvest and doesn't actually mention any observance that we would think of. Um, Our modern, if I can call it our modern memory of Thanksgiving is due largely to a Victorian nostalgia of the late 1800s and then an American patriotism of the early 1900s um, I'm thinking especially of like Norman Rockwell there and his series of paintings. Um, I'm glad that you that we talked about hospitality because when we think of the first Thanksgiving, we think of pilgrims and Indians sitting down together to enjoy a meal. And as we were just talking about with the rec- in recent events with the refugees, we can see many parallels there. If we remember that at this point in history, it was not the it was not the Americans that were in need, but it was the Europeans. It was most of our ancestors who, at that point, were in need. Um, what we're told is that excuse me. What we're told is that there was not just three days of celebration, but a whole week long observance. And while we think of Thanksgiving as sitting down to a feast where we enjoy food and family, we should remember that to the separatists who came from England, Thanksgiving was, some, was something very different. It was a day set aside for reflection, for humility, for remembrance of the providence of God. And most likely as part of that observance, there would not have been a feast, but there would rather have been fasting, which makes the Feast of Thanksgiving all that more important as they do, if not outright welcome, they at least tolerate the presence of the Indians there at their festivities. Um, In terms of what they ate, again, we don't know. The account only mentions that they had fowl which could be turkey, but it could also be geese or duck or some other bird. And we're told also that the Indians brought with them five deer. And I don't know how many 
regions of the United States, venison is on the table at Thanksgiving. I know in the northeastern states it's a little more common. But when we think of this gathering of individuals, we can say that there were – it wasn't necessarily multicultural – but there was a putting aside of differences for a short period of time, remembering that these two groups had no reason to trust each other, had little reason to get along. The Indians were recovering from an outbreak of plague in the previous years. The pilgrims were just getting settled. They had lost all but 52 of the original settlers and were outnumbered vastly by the Indians in their presence, and yet for three days they put aside those differences for at least some form of toleration to give thanks for what they had received, which I think can be a great encouragement to those of us today as we consider the recent events of the in the world and with the specific discussion on the Syrian refugees and refugees from the Middle East that are making their way to the United States. Um, so what could have been at that first Thanksgiving in addition to the turkey, um, according to William Bradford, they may also have had fish like bass and cod, um, Indian corn. We know what they didn't have. They didn't have potatoes and they did not have peas. So if you're a fan of sweet potato casserole or some other potato dish, I'm sorry, but you would not have enjoyed that in 1621. And peas, people seem to either love them or hate them, but they would not have been there either. Um, in terms of what Thanksgiving is about, I know our modern idea is it's a time for family. Um, we only need to look at the internet to see the stores that are closing for Thanksgiving to allow people to spend time with their family, or I know certain denominations will change a church service so that families can travel and be together. But when we look at the historical account, they were branching out. It wasn't a withdrawing, not just into their specific denomination or anything like that, or into their specific family, but it was going out and welcoming in, welcoming in the community. Um, here in the South, the best answer that, or the best illustration I could give would be like a community barbecue or a community pig pick where everyone would come together and enjoy the fruits of the community. Now you're making me hungry and homesick talking about pig picking. Uh, I'm far away here in the Midwest and we don't do that here, unfortunately. I know that different regions do, uh, do, different, do different things. But thankfully, at least there would have been turkey, so that much has come down to us over the years. Um, and you can't have Thanksgiving without pie. Unfortunately, the, the separatists probably wouldn't have pie for a couple of reasons. Number one, they didn't have the flour with which to make a crust, and their sugar would have run out. They may have had a sort of pumpkin custard made with pumpkin and honey and spices. That is a possibility. I think that'd be interesting to try if we could find a description of that recipe. 
So interesting, but, sort of like, I mean, I guess not exactly like the inside of the pumpkin pie, but, but a little bit like that? Yes, more of the, the meat of the pumpkin if you do a, like a roast or something like that is what, what I would imagine it would look like. Um, one other thing to note is that seafood would have played a large part in the early diet of the pilgrims. So we would have had, as I said before, things like trout and per perhaps bass, but also mussels. And I know there are certain parts of the country that enjoy oyster soup or oyster stew on Thanksgiving. Thank you for that context. And uh, since you've already got us started talking about food, I should say that our, our final segment, um, as it always is here at the CFP, is a recommendation segment. Uh, and this episode, since we have been talking about food and Thanksgiving, we are going to recommend uh, some recipes and also um, maybe some, some other episode-related um, gratitude or food-related links. So start us off, Jay, what's your recommendation? Well, for, th for Thanksgiving, I would have to recommend apple pie. If you have never tried to make homemade apple pie, there's plenty of recipes out there. I think you can even get one off the back of like Pillsbury flour or something like that. Um, but try to make a homemade pie. Use experiment with apples, find something that works well for you. That holds a a special place in my heart. That's one thing that I took from my mother who said, learn to make one thing and make it well. And so my that apple pie is my specialty. In fact, I think, Alexis, you posted just before we started recording about how to make the perfect pie filling. All right. Uh, that's, that's good advice your mother gave. Um, do one thing and do it well. I like that. And we'll, uh, we'll link to an apple pie recipe in the show notes. Alexis, what do you have for us? Well, uh, before I share a recipe, I want to take a little sidestep and uh, make two book recommendations because apparently I just I can't restrict myself more than that. Um, one, uh, thinking about hospitality, uh, a decent book that I've read uh, on hospitality uh, is called Bread and Wine uh, by Shauna Nequist. Um, it's it's a helpful um, discussion of how to overcome many common obstacles to to being hospitable, uh, sort of get over your mess, get over, you know, whatever hangups you have about perfectionism and just be hospitable. Um, it's not the most Christian book in that it doesn't talk as much about the the symbolism or the significance or or anything like that. I think people of sort of all faiths could appreciate 99% of what's in this book um, for good or for ill. But it's it's a good sort of starting off point for thinking about how to start being hospitable. Uh, another issue uh, that we haven't talked about as much today, uh, food does have uh, present an opportunity for sin. Uh, there are certainly ways to eat sinfully. Uh, and one of the things that I've struggled with as someone who loves food is how to uh, be a good steward of this physical body uh, and think well about the food that I put in it. Uh, the best book I've read on this subject so far is called Everybody Matters, Everybody Matters by Gary Thomas. It's just talking about being a good steward of your physical body uh, from a food and an exercise point of view. Um, so those are my two recommendations for reading material. Um, and then my, my cooking recommendation, my recipe, uh, is actually one of our family traditions. Uh, it's called squash apple bake. Uh, it's a substitute for the sweet potato dish at the table. Uh, it's a combination of butternut squash and apples. 
And the seasoning for it is like a butter, uh, uh, cinnamon, and brown sugar combination. Uh, I like it because it's sort of less sweet than a lot of the marshmallowy sweet potato uh, dishes, which helps me to leave more sort of sweetness room on my palate for the desserts. I don't want to blow all my dessert mojo uh, at the dinner table. So, um, so I've really enjoyed that as a as a less uh, uh, saccharin um, kind of option. Um, for for the dinner table. And one of my favorite things about it is it's really easy to make in the microwave. So if you have no oven space available to you uh, at Thanksgiving at Thanksgiving because of the turkey or whatever else you've got going on, uh, this puppy pops in the microwave and uh, super easy and fast. Um, and uh, and yeah, just a great great way to to make life easy for yourself and have something a little bit different at the table. Nice. Gotta love saving that oven space. I feel like I always run out of space when we're preparing Thanksgiving dinner. So good. That's, uh, that's helpful. Uh, my recipe recommendation is, uh, cornbread sausage dressing. Um, as I said to Jay earlier, I am, uh, a born Southerner currently, uh, exiled, happily exiled, but exiled, um, here in the Midwest, um, and we, we almost never travel home for Thanksgiving, we, we spend it here in Minnesota, and so, uh, Thanksgiving is a, a time when I try, uh, to, to bring as much of the South here as I can, and one of the ways that I do that is, uh, my dressing, um, Southerners will know, uh, we don't eat stuffing, um, None of that ridiculous stovetop blasphemy either. Um, the dressing is, is cooked outside of the bird. Um, mine has uh, cornbread and lots of homemade stock and vegetables. And, uh, of course, pork and pork fat, as all good southern side dishes do. Um, so I, I can't decide whether I'm going to share... Uh, my actual recipe or a similar recipe, uh, I, I suppose the, the hospitable thing to do would be to share my actual recipe, so maybe I should do that, though um, I'm sure many of you listeners, Southern and not, know that families are, are often really proprietary about the recipes that they pass down, so uh, I'll, I'll make that decision and, and share either my recipe or something very close to it. So those are our Thanksgiving-related recommendations. Um, do either of you have anything to add before we go? I actually have one more note I wanted to make. Um, Victoria, you've, you've mentioned several times sort of the, the, the beauty of the mundane, practical side of food tying into these profound spiritual realities. And one of the things that's come up for me again and again uh, preparing for this episode and thinking about hospitality is... Um, is how much the the physical body um, and physical concerns do matter. Um, we don't always talk about it by this name, but the idea of, of Gnosticism, that, that the physical uh, is, is lesser or evil in a way that the spiritual is not, um, all of the stuff we've talked about today is a great example of how that's just profoundly unbiblical. Um, God cares about the physical needs of people, and he cares that we meet them. Uh, he cares about our physical needs. He describes himself uh, using the symbolism of physical food and, and other physical objects. Um, and while he is spirit, 
we we are told that we you know, we know we have bodies and we're told we will still have bodies um, uh, in heaven. And I just I think it's a great reminder that we don't need to to hate on physical. Uh, real tangible things um, we don't hate them we redeem them we try to to reflect our biblical ideas as we relate to them but the absolute rejection of the physical is not the solution um, he cares about not just uh, meeting spiritual needs for people and for ourselves but but also about the physical and he blesses us richly spiritually and physically um, in, in many ways so it's just just something that I've been thinking about and wanted to, to squeeze in there so Thanks. I think that's a fantastic point. And, and something that that frustrates me sometimes, too, this this um, not just elevation of, of the spirit, but kind of excessive elevation of the spirit at the expense of the body, which which is important. And, you know, I, the, the incarnation of, of Christ is, is central to our faith and, and the kind of grace that we experience would not exist without the incarnation. So, yes, we should um, we should talk about the Holy Spirit and, and we should talk about the spiritual part of the deity and uh, and the resurrection and all of those things. We should also talk about the incarnation and the fact that, you know, Christ did lower himself physically to be with us, and that's important too. Absolutely. I had two more recommendations. One is a blog. Um, it is faithandamericanhistory.wordpress.com, and that is actually run by Professor McKinsey out of um, Wharton College, and he has published a four- or five-part series on the first Thanksgiving, the faith of the pilgrims and the interaction between the pilgrims, the strangers, that would be the Anglicans that were with them, and the Indians. So if you'd like to learn more, um, I would direct you there. Also, I know that we talked before that we cannot know what was eaten at the first Thanksgiving, but we do know what the what these settlers would have meditated on. And for that, I would direct you to a book, The Music of the Pilgrims by Waldo Selden Pratt, that is since out of print, and it is available in a variety of online formats. But if we remember that the separatists were a highly reflective people, they would have been reflecting on the Psalms during their Thanksgiving period. And this very short pamphlet outlines the music that they would have participated in during their observance. Uh, thanks for those recommendations. They both sound really interesting. Uh, and I think that wraps us up. Thanks, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Sway Jimenez is our intern. For Jay Eldred and Alexis Neal, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in two weeks for a special Christian Humanist Podcast Network crossover event to be announced soon. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, 
and in all things, love.